I invite you to turn uh, with me in your scripture to the uh, Gospel of Matthew. We're reading in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 12 uh, through 17. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. One of the blessings of being on holiday is we're able as a family to visit other churches uh, along uh, the way. And uh, we were, before we returned home at an OPC in a state that will be not named, and, um, but we attended their service and <clears throat> one hour uh, went by and uh, two hours went by. And, uh, and the service ended about two and a half hours uh, since the beginning. And after that service, uh, I think it was one of my children that said to me, Dad, we're never going to complain about a long sermon again. And I said, oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so that's good. You get to, as you on holiday, you get to see different services in different places. And so, but don't worry, we're not going to be here two and a half hours. So, but it is good to be back and good to be in the gospel again. Of Matthew, last time we left the Lord Jesus, uh, having been tempted uh, by the devil in the wilderness, and he was being ministered to by angels, uh, and the devil left him for a time. And this is what we read, Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard, that's Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful that we can again uh, turn to the scripture. We know, Lord, that you have made great uh, promises to us about this word that we have before us that it is your very breathed out uh, words, profitable for us, useful to us for all things, that we would be fully equipped uh, to serve you in our life. We want to serve you, Lord. We want to serve you in the week to come. And so we thank you that you have given us again this opportunity to be equipped, uh, to know the truth, that the truth would set us free, free to serve, free to love, free to minister to others. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would teach us tonight by your Holy Spirit and apply Uh, these uh, words of scripture to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking at the uh, gospel of Matthew uh, under the theme of uh, the gospel uh, of the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the rule and reign of Jesus, and hopefully as we continue to go through this gospel, as we've seen already, that indeed this is the great uh, theme of Uh, Matthew, that he wants uh, us to know that indeed the reign and rule of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has broken into 
uh, this world. And so uh, we saw, just to remind ourselves of where we are, we saw in chapter 1 uh, the ancestry of the king. He came, remember, from a long line of sinners, uh, but he came as the promised king, and he comes with uh, two names specifically, Matthew tells us. His name is Savior, uh, and his name is Emmanuel. He comes to save people from their sin, and he is God with us. And we saw in chapter 2 that the proper response to the king who has come now after a long wait, the proper response is worship, uh, to bow down before him. And uh, not the people who should be bowing down, we find bowing down, but uh, we see wise men coming from afar, from the nations. And so already we saw there in chapter 2 that Matthew is concerned for you to know, for me to know that Jesus comes for the nations and not just for the people of Israel. And they come and they They bow down to this king, but not everybody bows down. There's also opposition to the king, and so Herod wants him dead. And so even though some come to worship rightly, uh, Herod wants him dead. And yet, even the rage of King Herod and the persecution of the king, even seeking the death of the king, all leads to the fulfillment of God's plan. Remember that, all those passages. So So this was fulfilled, and that was fulfilled. All fulfilling God's plan in Scripture, even the persecution of of the king. And then in chapter 3, of course, we are introduced to John the Baptist as the herald of the king, the one who announces the coming of the king, preparing the way for the Lord, and the way he prepares people for the coming of the Lord is he calls them to confess their sins, uh, to repent of their sins, to recognize they are sinners, and that there is a mighty one who is coming, who is going to gather his wheat uh, into the barn. And so Jesus came. Uh, He came and he is baptized. He identifies himself with his sinful people because uh, he will be their sin bearer. And even though he has no sin, he receives the the sign of baptism for the forgiveness of sins because uh, he will, throughout his life, identify himself with the people for whom he came to save. And he hears the testimony of the Father, this is my son, and he is uh, fully equipped, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, for his work. And then in chapter 4, where we are, last time we saw that this king is the obedient one who when tempted, even as Adam was tempted in the garden, but this time Jesus is tempted and he remains faithful to the Lord. He takes a stand upon uh, the word of God. It is his food. He lives by every word that comes from his mouth and he's not led astray uh, to sin. He's not... uh, tempted to take a different way to power and glory that the devil opened to him. No, he would would walk the the faithful way that would lead him uh, to the cross, and uh, he will be faithful. And so just as the first Adam sinned, and in him we sinned with him, and we're plunged into sin and condemnation, the last Adam, Jesus, obeys. He fulfills all righteousness, as we'll see throughout his life, and we are righteous then in him. And so you're either in the first Adam, condemned in your sin, or you're in the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, who is obedient even to the end. And so the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel of the Kingdom, and the Gospel of Matthew then is the Gospel of the King who comes to reign uh, and to rule over his kingdom. So he's been prophesied, he's born, he's worshipped, he's opposed, he's announced, he's baptized, and he's tempted And then we find in the heading of our ESV, if you're using the ESV Bible at this point, uh, not, of course, uh, these headings are not part of the inspired text, but they can be helpful guides to us as to what is coming. And so in my ESV, uh, at this chapter heading, we have Jesus begins 
his ministry. And notice, first of all, uh, that timing, uh, timing is everything when it comes to the ministry of the king. Verse 12, now when he, that's Jesus, heard uh, that John had been arrested, he withdrew uh, into Galilee. Now, the first question that would strike us is, what is the connection between chapter 4, verse 11, and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil, and chapter 4, verse 12? Uh, Is there, uh, 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 Matthew here clearly is not uh, indicating some kind of chronological procession necessarily. We don't know how much time has elapsed uh, between Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and Jesus hearing about the arrest of John the baptizer, who you'll remember is his, is his cousin. And so Matthew moves us uh, right to the arrest of John. Now, John was, again, the cousin of Jesus. He was put in prison by Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. Uh, we might be interested to know why. And so if you have your Bible open, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 14... Uh, We'll find out what's going on exactly at this time in history as Jesus hears of his arrest. In chapter 14, moving ahead in Matthew, uh, this will be the time where uh, we will actually learn of John's martyrdom uh, for his faithfulness to Christ. But we're told why he was arrested in chapter 14, verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because... John had been saying to him, that is to the king, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, that is, Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be uh, a prophet. And so instead he threw him uh, in prison. In other words, uh, John later in Matthew 14 is going to die Uh, as a faithful servant of Christ. That's an important thing for us to remember right here as we think about the preaching ministry of Jesus because that reminds us that John the baptizer not only preached repentance, uh, but he put his life on the line and confronted others with with the need to repent, you see. So for John, faith in Christ was not just about words. He applied the scripture to his life situation and it ended, uh, ended him up in prison. And uh, in fact, uh, we find out he applied the message we heard earlier, right, in the earlier chapters of Matthew, he applied it to the political bigwig of the day, uh, the king. Uh, But we might say, John, don't, oh, John, you know, you're not supposed to mix faith and politics. But John, the Bible, the Bible is only for the church not meant to be applied to political leaders. But John, you know, you got to let kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers govern themselves by natural law, however modern man might determine what is natural. And we know how that goes in our day today. And don't go around applying, John, the Bible to anyone and everybody. I mean, as if Jesus was Lord over all. No, instead, John was faithful to his king. And that meant every other king must bow and submit to King Jesus and the word of King Jesus. And what you're doing is not right, according to God, you see. And that brought him trouble, imprisonment, and eventually death. But here in Matthew 4, Jesus hears about his imprisonment. 
that John was arrested. Notice here, by the way, Jesus comes to this knowledge not supernaturally, uh, but in a very human manner through the grapevine. And when he hears of John's arrest, uh, he withdraws from Judea into Galilee, from which he had come, we read in chapter 3, verse 13, to be baptized by John. Now, here's the thing. Why? Why? Why uh, does he withdraw into Galilee when he hears uh, that John the Baptist has been arrested? Was he afraid of what might happen to him now that John had been arrested? Well, no, that's not the case, of course. We read the rest of the Gospels. We know Jesus was not afraid of persecution or anything like that. But keep in mind here that uh, as we read with Matthew this Gospel, that Matthew is bringing us forward here in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, remember that the gospel writers would uh, select uh, what they would record in their gospel. We have four gospels. Some gospels record some stories that other gospels don't. Remember that John uh, tells us in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus said and did many more things, said John, but these have been written, said John, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. And so there's many more things, when you read your Bible, there's many more things, as you can imagine, that Jesus did and that Jesus said, and uh, the gospel writers don't record everything. And in fact, if you look uh, at the gospel of John chapters 1 through 4, you find all sorts of things that Matthew doesn't record. You find Jesus interacting with John the Baptist. You find Jesus, for instance, performing his first miracle, changing water into wine, at the wedding of Cana. This is all happening between verses 11 and 12. You find the disciples of John the Baptist being concerned about Jesus' growing popularity. You find Jesus encountering Nicodemus, which Matthew does not mention. You find Jesus meeting the woman at the well and his ministry in Samaria. And all these things seem to happen between verse 11 and verse 12, which Matthew doesn't include. And it was in that time period that John said of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. And that was happening. So why would Jesus withdraw into Galilee? Well, listen to William Hendrickson, a reliable Reformed commentator of an earlier generation. Why does Jesus withdraw as all this is happening? The real reason was this, said Hendrickson, that he was well aware of the fact that his own great popularity in the country region of Judea would bring about such keen resentment on the part of the Judean religious leaders that this resentment in the natural course of events would lead to a premature crisis. The Lord knew that for every event in his life, there was an appointed time in God's decree. And he also knew that the appropriate moment for his death had not yet arrived. As soon as that moment arrived, he would voluntarily lay down his life. He would do so then, but not before then. Hence, he must now leave Judea. And so he hears of the arrest of John, and he withdraws into Galilee. In fact, in Luke's gospel, what happens right before Jesus withdraws into Galilee, he's in his hometown of Capernaum, and the people, uh, the Bible says, want to get a hold of him, uh, and they want to throw him off a cliff. And uh, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. Why? Because it's not yet time, not yet time for his death. He has ministry to do. Timing is everything. So Jesus withdraws to Galilee. Secondly, uh, location, location, location. And leaving Nazareth, he went, into, uh, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, 
uh, so that, uh, or in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Jesus withdraws into Galilee, doesn't stay in Capernaum, his, 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 own, his own city that way. Um, or he doesn't stay in Nazareth, his own city, but he goes to Capernaum. Location, location, location. You ever wonder why a brand new uh, CVS opens across the road from a perfectly good Walgreens? You ever ask yourself that question? You say, why? Why there? That doesn't seem to make uh, any sense. Uh, the bridge to nowhere is an arch bridge that was built in 1936, apparently north of Azusa. Uh, I think I saw, there she is. Um, sorry, Erica, not her, but she's from that area. Have you been up to the bridge to nowhere? Yes. So there's a bridge to nowhere uh, north of Azusa. I guess they built it in 1936, uh, but it was abandoned in 1938 because of great floods there, leaving the bridge forever stranded in the middle of what's uh, now the Sheep Mountain Wilderness there. But uh, uh, I have never gone up there to apparently you can see remnants of the bridge. Uh, but it doesn't serve any purpose. And think, well, why there if there's going to be floods all the time? Um, this is a popular name, apparently, because in New Zealand, there's also a bridge to nowhere. I have this feeling that uh, in every country, there's a bridge to nowhere. Uh, this one's in Wanganui National Park. No roads leading to it. Uh, but it's a popular tourist attraction. We kind of drove in that area once when we lived in New Zealand, but you guessed it. We thought, oh, this would be great to see, but there's no road there. Uh, so you have to, you'd have to hike uh, a good piece in. So we did not drive past uh, the bridge uh, to nowhere. Uh, wrong location. Do you build your house on sand or on the rock? Uh, consider the location. Or remember the psalmist in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so location is important. And so Jesus leaves Nazareth, Nazareth, and went and lived, the Bible says, in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. This place was called Galilee uh, of the Gentiles. Now, this is important, where Jesus goes. Not Judea now, but Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was sometimes called in the Bible the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Gennesaret. Not Jerusalem, but Capernaum will be his place of ministry. Capernaum can mean the village of Nahum, or because Nahum means compassionate, it can simply mean the village of consolation or the village of comfort. Well, why Capernaum? Why this location? Well, notice again, first of all, according to the scripture text, that like all of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, he is what he is and he does what he does uh, in fulfillment of God's word. Verse 14, he settles there so that, verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah uh, hundreds of years ago might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why. So that it might be fulfilled. Every moment of Jesus' life, decision made, road taken, we find out in the Gospels is a fulfillment of the plan and the purpose and the Word of God. And, and this was his delight. Uh, this was his joy uh, to fulfill his Father's will. 
There are, as someone once put it, no alien molecules in the universe. That is, if God is sovereign, uh, that there's no such thing as a random molecule. Not one square inch, said Abraham Kuyper, over which Christ the King does not claim mine. And we could say something like, there's not one moment in time, there's not one molecular structure, there's not one hair on your head or event in your life or visit to the hospital over which God the Father does not say uh, mine according to His plan and purpose. Jesus went there so that uh, God's Word would be Fulfilled. Now, you know, recently I had my gallbladder removed, and uh, according to the British National Health Service, the gallbladder is a small pouch-like organ in the upper right part of your tummy. It stores bile, a fluid produced by the liver that helps break down fatty foods. Says the British Health Service, you don't need a gallbladder, uh, so surgery to take it out is often recommended if you develop any problems uh, with it. So there you go, I don't, I don't need it. Or, or is it more that we don't know why we need it? I think it's the latter. My gallbladder was not some accidental addition by God. It has a function, and that function is good, and time will only tell what I've lost. But if he knows every hair, uh, he certainly knows every organ. Jesus withdrew to Galilee, and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Why Capernaum? Well, another reason would be this. It would serve Capernaum uh, as a strategic location from which Jesus would carry out what has come to be called his great Galilean ministry. Now, Galilee was not big, apparently. Maybe 50 miles uh, you know, from top to bottom, 50 miles, 25 miles across. According to Josephus, Jewish historian at the time, uh, 204 cities in Galilee had more than 15,000 inhabitants. So what's that? That's about a fifth of Redlands, maybe? You're talking about the, the, sea of, the area of Galilee in which Jesus would do so many miracles and ministry, about 15,000 people, maybe just this east side here of Redlands. It was settled, this area, by the tribes of Zebulun and uh, Naphtali. It's also an area that uh, came under the Assyrian conquest. And so many uh, unbelievers had come into that area and mixed with, mixed with God's people. And Capernaum, of course, is today only a collection of ruins, uh, including a partially uh, restructured synagogue. And on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples could travel by boat across uh, the water. They could easily travel by land to the surrounding areas around the shore. Capernaum's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, uh, situated on a trade route, we're told, between Damascus and the Mediterranean. And so even though it doesn't sound like a lot of people, this was a, this was a busy place, a strategic place from which Jesus would minister. And so in the gospel, it's in Capernaum that we will hear of the faith of a Roman centurion who should have been the envy of all Israelites. His faith had not been seen in Israel. In Capernaum, uh, Jesus uh, would describe this as his own city. A paralytic lying on a mat will be raised by Jesus. In Capernaum, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, a man's shriveled hand will be healed. In Capernaum, again in the synagogue, a man would be cleansed of a demon. In fact, 
all the amazing miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum would serve to convict all those who would not take them to heart. Because in Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Jesus will say this, And you, Capernaum, where he came, based his ministry, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, said Jesus, you will be, you'll be brought down to Hades. Why? For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, in that wicked city, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. So he withdraws into Galilee, uh, makes his base in Capernaum, from which all his glorious miracles will take place. But for many, all these miracles would only serve to condemn them because even though they saw his mighty works, they never actually uh, put their faith in Jesus. And friends, that reminds us again, just greater light. Jesus comes and his mighty works are displayed. That's greater light, greater blessing, and greater responsibility. Members of God's covenant community like you and I, means of grace all around us, greater responsibility, of course, for their neglect. Listen again to William Hendrickson. In his sovereign grace, God did the holy unexpected. Why Galilee? Not mainly to the Jerusalem aristocracy, but especially to the despised, sorely afflicted, and largely ignorant masses of Galilee, a mixed Gentile Jewish population, did he send his son. It was in and around Galilee that Jesus spent most of his incarnate life on earth. It was here he grew up. Here also that he subsequently traveled from village to village on his errands of mercy, imparting comfort and healing, and above all else, seeking to save the lost. It was here that he walked the shores and addressed the crowds. It was in this general region that he gathered around him a band of disciples. It was from this northern portion of Palestine that his words of life and beauty of admonition and consolation were carried far and wide and from father to son. Not Jerusalem, not Judea, but he settles in Galilee, in Capernaum. That would have been an unexpected place for the Savior to spend so much of his time. Matthew, of course, here, as he did earlier with the coming of the wise men to bow down and worship Jesus is emphasizing that Jesus comes as the Savior of, of the world. He doesn't come simply to save one people, the Israelites. He comes to save the nations. He comes to save those who are looked down upon, and even the Galileans. Later in the, in the Scripture, in the Gospel of John, uh, at sometimes someone will say, um, you know, can this, can, no prophet comes out of Galilee. It was not known for... Uh, spiritual closeness to God or something like that. And here it's important for us to be mindful that it's only Matthew of the four gospel writers who includes this passage from Isaiah. Because Matthew wants to show from beginning to end, Jesus, the, the Jewish Messiah, has come not just for the Israelites, but he's come uh, for the nations. And so location is important. But there is something else, friends, about this location. Did you notice? Uh, verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people, the people, 
dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. So Jesus comes to an unexpected, he comes to Galilee. It will be a strategic place, but, but the land here is really a metaphor for the, um, he, he came to a people. And these people uh, are characterized uh, in the scripture this way, as those dwelling in darkness and dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. They're, they're characterized as darkness dwellers, shadow dwellers, death dwellers. They're dwelling, that means sitting, your translation might say sitting, that means they are settled there. They're not standing, walking, journeying, traveling through darkness. They are at home there. Darkness in the scripture, of course, often represents the realm of chaos and danger and fear and hopelessness and helplessness and depravity of mind and heart, discouragement, depression, punishment, and darkness. This is, these, this is all, all wrapped up together in the scripture, darkness and hopelessness, helplessness, and so forth. Earlier, um, earlier this year, I took my girls on a, a daddy-daughter trip to uh, San Francisco, and uh, we looked forward to this trip for quite some time, just went away for a couple days, and uh, so what are we going to do when we get to San Francisco with my three daughters? Mm. Well, uh, dads being dads, uh, where did I take them? Alcatraz, yeah, of course, that's where you take three little girls, right? Uh, Alcatraz. Uh, but you take the tour of the prison and you come to D block uh, for the worst of prisoners if you've ever been to Alcatraz, that prison, D block. They were kept in cells in total uh, darkness, uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, for some, the worst offenders, uh, seven days a week. And food simply slid uh, under the door. Punishment, darkness, hopelessness, helplessness. Now, clearly the darkness here uh, described by Matthew is a spiritual darkness because, of course, these folks in Galilee, uh, when they woke up in the morning, they, like everyone else in Capernaum, would have had the light of the sun. Um, they ate and drank and worked and played like everyone else. But uh, Matthew says uh, their spirit was surrounded by darkness. They may have even gone to synagogue, had the Old Testament scriptures, but yet they were still dwellers in darkness, as we find out in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus goes into the synagogue. You see, the same is true today. Location, location, location. Where are you? Where do you dwell? Right? Where does your mind and heart and soul find its home, while Jesus withdrew to Galilee, and that place to which Jesus withdrew, from which he would base his ministry, perform all these mighty works, the Bible says it was a, it was a place of spiritual darkness, and that's where people lived. Where's Los Angeles today? Where's the United States today? Where's the typical 60-year-old or 16-year-old? Where do they dwell? Well, if you ever watched a movie, ever watched a sitcom, uh, Actually, listen to the words of any popular music. Ever look at the billboards on Interstate 10? Ever listen to our politicians? We often dwell in darkness. That's where Jesus goes. Timing is everything. And location, location, location. But 
the light dawns. Verse 16. The people, this is who he went to, dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there are many great moments in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. But one of the greatest comes in the second book, The Two Towers. Theoden is a king trying to win battles and help restore peace in the magical land of Middle-earth. And a great battle against evil is nearing, and he wants to inspire his men against what appears to be an overwhelming, unbeatable enemy. And so to the riders of Rohan, the warriors of his kingdom, he shouts this, Arise, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter, spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. And so he encourages his men to not run away from the fight, even though it appears dark. Uh, he tells them to head towards the battle. Now remember, this is written in the 1950s, uh, while the memories of world, the world wars are still fresh to many people. And so then the battle of Helm's Deep comes, and the defenders of the Rohirrim suffer heavy losses against the evil wizard Saruman and his Urukai as they hold the fort through the night. All seems hopeless and dark. That is, until dawn, ere the sun rises. And the, uh, the great wizard Gandalf uh, arrives uh, and with uh, 2,000 riders led by Aomir uh, from the Rohirrim. Uh, they come charging down the hill as the sun rises uh, to defeat Saruman's forces. The people dwelling in darkness have seen uh, a great... Light. Now, of course, light in the scripture represents this idea of illumination, being able to see something for the first time, to, to comprehend something, to have the truth revealed to you, to have uh, uh, your sin exposed, and, and the glory of, of God and his salvation made clear. That's why the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And here Matthew says, The light is seen. On them a light has dawned, the light shines upon us, and the light preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that interesting? Jesus comes upon the scene and gives the same message uh, as John the baptizer. Jesus preached the same gospel as John preached. Now, some might have heard John the Baptist saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they say, John... That's a, little, that's a little harsh. How are you going to win friends and, you know, make friends and uh, build the church that way? That's a harsh message of, you know, repentance for sin, John. We want to hear more about Jesus. We want to hear more from Jesus and his, and, his, uh, and his love. And so Jesus comes as the light. And you know what he does? He preaches the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, remember? Turn from sin. In this case, turn from darkness. Turn from dwelling in darkness and sin and turn to the light. That is, turn to Jesus. Same message, same 
gospel. Friends, the gospel does not change. Life in Christ, faith and repentance, turn from sin, turn to Christ. These are gifts of his grace, but the gospel, friends, doesn't change. If you come to John the Baptist or you came to Jesus, you would hear the same message, and so it should be in the church today. You go to a Baptist church, you go to a Pentecostal church, you go to a Presbyterian church, you go to an OPC, you go to a PCA. shouldn't matter if they are preaching the one true gospel. One gospel, one Lord, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king has come. One way, one truth, one life, one mediator between God and man. But notice, friends, this is so important. Notice the light that dawns (laughs) is a person. The light that comes is is Jesus. That's that's important because... um, Uh, The light that dawns is not a theory, it's not a doctrine, it's not a method, it's not a scientific discovery, it's not a new diet, it's not a philosophy, Uh, it's a person. That's when light comes into your darkness in which you're dwelling in your own sin and selfishness and discouragement, whatever it is, when the light dawns, it's Jesus that actually dawns. And you see Him, clearly. This is what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim, what a preacher proclaims, what a church proclaims, is this. Not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what John the Baptist preached, and that's why he died. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then this, for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness at the creation, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, you see the glory of God when you come face to face with Jesus, you see. And the light dawns, it comes, it shines upon us, and all of a sudden we see instead of ignoring God or taking God for granted, maybe we've grown up in the church all our life, Uh, Instead of taking that all for granted, we see his glory in the face of Jesus and all that he is and all that he does and all that he says, uh, and we see him for the first time, and we bow down and worship light for our darkness. You can only see the light, of course, when the blinders are taken off. No matter how much light there is, it doesn't matter if you're blind, right? If you're blind and you've got a 40-watt bulb, or you've got a 60-watt bulb, or you've got a 100-watt bulb, doesn't matter. You need sight. The light shines upon us, comes to us. We don't come to the light ourselves. Uh, you've got to ask yourself the question, can you cause the sun to rise? Let's say it's 3 a.m. In the, in the morning. What can you do to get the sun to rise? No, <laughs> the sun rises, as we observe it anyway, And perhaps most wonderfully of all, this light speaks, this light preaches, he proclaims, he announces the word is keruso in the Greek. It does not mean Jesus came to suggest. It does not mean that Jesus came to engage in dialogue. Uh, It does not mean that uh, Jesus came to give some helpful uh, hints for your life. Uh, The Bible says Jesus came and he came preaching, he came announcing, he came uh, proclaiming, repent, turn from darkness to the light. The kingdom 
is at hand. Friends, you and I don't need to stay in the darkness any longer. In fact, in Jesus, this is true of you, Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what's true of believers taken out of being a darkness dweller, uh, a region of the shadow of death dweller, and being brought into the light as it is in Jesus. So did you notice, of course, here that Matthew says, in all these things, we're the ones dwelling in darkness. How, how does this salvation come? Well, the light dawns upon us, you see. We don't go to the light. The light comes to us, shines into our life. The blinders are taken off, and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Well, how do we respond to that? Just in closing here, how do we respond to this truth? That there's light for our darkness. Life where there was only death. Well, friends, our relationship to God uh, is, is not like a graduate's relationship uh, to the government with regard to their student loans. You know, sometimes we think about our relationship, I think, to God that way. You know, when Lisa and I graduated from university, uh, let's just say we both had significant student loans. So we started to work on hers first. Uh, but a few years went by and we thought, boy, this is going to take forever. Uh, we will never be free of this debt. Always hanging over us. Now, yes, we were thankful that we were able to go to college because of these loans. We couldn't have afforded it otherwise. We're thankful, but we also knew we had to pay it all back. We were debtors to the government. But the day came when a family member, as I told you before, came to me and said, we know, Peter, that this debt is a great burden to you and your family, and we want you to serve the Lord free of this debt. We want to pay it all for you. Now, we as a family, I don't go back to this family member trying to pay that family member back. They gave it freely. In fact, they told us, this is not our money, this is the Lord's money. They don't want us in their debt. They want us to see ourselves as free to serve. All debts paid, no more to owe. It has all been paid by another as a gift of love. So how do you live the Christian life? How do you live as one who has seen the light upon whom the light of Christ has dawned? Well, friends, to many, uh, too many, try to live the Christian life with a debtor's ethic. That is, yes, you're thankful for Jesus, but you need to pay him back. And the Bible says you can't. Yes, you're thankful for the king, you're thankful for grace, but every day you're trying to work it off. You're not loving, worshiping, obeying, serving as acts of love and thankfulness, but as a way to somehow earn or pay back what He has given to you. You never can. Infinite love, infinite grace, His righteousness, His obedience, all received by faith as a gift. Our response is not payback, but love, thankfulness, gratitude which overflows in service to the king. We love because he first loved us. Light in the darkness. You don't pay back the light, but you live. You live thankfully 
in its presence because you're no longer in the darkness. You're no longer dwelling in the darkness of sin and guilt and condemnation and fear, but you're walking in the light as he is in the light. As Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Peter will put it next week, as we'll look at in the morning service, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when the light comes, what do you do? You want to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has shone the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into your darkness. May it be so of you, may it be so of me. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel of Matthew. We thank you for... Uh, this passage of Scripture that by your Holy Spirit you led your servant Matthew to record that in the coming of the life of Jesus and his withdrawing to Galilee, he again is fulfilling your word of old through the prophet Isaiah, that Jesus went to that place, went to Capernaum, did mighty works there for all to see. He went to a place where people were dwelling in darkness, living in darkness, living in sin, and the Lord Jesus came to shine his, his light, the light of His presence, the light of His righteousness, the light of His grace, the light of His mercy into their lives that they might no longer dwell in darkness, but turn, repent, turn away from darkness and embrace the light as it is in Jesus. Embrace the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank You today that Jesus comes to us in our darkness he comes to us as a people living in a land of darkness and the light of the, the gospel comes to us, shines into our life. And Lord, we pray that we would not be like those people of Capernaum who had all the blessings, who had, all the, who had the very presence of Jesus himself performing the miracles that we only read about in Scripture. But they had the life and blood Jesus before them and yet they rejected him. And they turned away from him, despite all the evidence that he was their Savior, and they needed him so desperately. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we today here in Redlands, surrounded by means of grace, surrounded by the gospel, Lord, that we would not be like the Capernaums, but that instead we would see these mighty works, that we would embrace Jesus as he shines upon us, as we see who we are, as we see who you are, and as we see the majesty of Jesus before us, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.